Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the forthcoming novel Missionaries, available October 6th. Our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara of Racket Media. Our special guest, Jesse Walker, books editor of Reason Magazine, the author of the books Rebels on the Air, an alternative history of radio in America, and the United States of Paranoia, a conspiracy theory. Me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Jesse, it is uh, it's a pleasure having admired your work and wanted to have this conversation for a long time to finally have you here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad we finally realized that with the pandemic, I don't actually have to go to New York for us to do this. So <laughs> it makes things easier. Yeah. Where yeah. where are you uh, where are you talking to us from? Baltimore. Okay, good to go. Yeah, yeah thrilled to have you. You want to tell us, uh, Jesse, the two works, the Burroughs Manifesto, and then the uh, short video clip, you want to introduce those? Yeah, so the book is The Revised Boy Scout Manual, An Electronic Revolution uh, by William Burroughs. Uh, I don't know quite how to describe what kind of book it is, so we will <laughs> don't get even try that. yet. <laughs> I will say that he wrote it around 1970, and parts of it were published in his lifetime, but it was not published in full until I think two years ago, 2018. And then the other work of art we will be discussing um, has, goes by many names. I think the um, the usual name is Schickel Gruber doing the Lambeth Walk. I often see it called Lambeth Walk Nazi style. Other other names float around. It's a propaganda film from approximately 1941. I see it dated sometimes, 40 or 42. It, there's a whole lot of ambiguity around it, uh, made by a fellow named Charles A. Ridley. Yeah, and if you go to YouTube and you put in Lambeth Walk, L-A-M-B-E-T-H, Walk, Nazi style, um, it's on YouTube. You can watch it. It's only about two minutes. But that is the much easier thing to discuss, this two-minute <laughs> video. Let me return, <laughs> if I may to the rather um, more difficult and perplexing manifesto for today, which is William Burroughs' revised Boy Scout manual and electronic revolution. So before getting into like what it is in any deeper sense, let's, let's try and lay out what it consists of. I'll start. The cover is uh, I'm looking at an electronic version. Um, Jesse, you can correct me if you have a hard copy and it looks different. But what I see is a yellow cover marked at the top, Bulletin 23, and then under the title, a three-panel photo series of Burroughs in a, um, well, I, I would say an ill-fitting suit, um, pulling a pistol. I think he identifies the pistol inside the manual, so we can get back to that in a moment. But it's essentially um, Burroughs unholstering a pistol from his waistband and then aiming it with poor form <laughs> as he stands in front of a cutout of a silhouette. 
I, I, and, I think if there's anything anyone uh, expects from William Burroughs, it is not um, a gun safety. So I, the poor form, form. Right. yeah, is, is, is not going to be expected. Um, it's more just like his black body, like you know, he's got, um, you know, he's not, uh, he's not somebody who's solidly constructed. Um, <laughs> you know, when he was a when he was a child, a wealthy neighbor described him as looking like um, a sheep killing dog. <laughs> oh yeah, that's. That's pretty good. A sickly, I would say, sickly <laughs> yeah. sheep going down. Sickly sheep going down. But okay, yeah. if that's the cover of the thing, if that gives you some sense of the cover, which is a sort of how-to manual of sorts, uh, Jesse, can you take a crack and then you know maybe fill fill it in at describing just that what the book consists of structurally yeah. speaking? So. Um, when I, I wrote a mini review of it when it came out, and mini review means one of those three or four paragraph squibs that does not pretend to actually explicate everything about a book. Uh, and I called it the ayahuasca trip of guerrilla guidebooks, um, which, which I think kind of gets across the sort of mixture of um, like Che Guevara. If Che Guevara were a libertarian on LSD um, or something like that, it's it, the thing that's, it sort of poses as a um, his guide to uh, fomenting and enacting a revolution. Um, and at times he seems very serious, but every time he does that, it starts getting over the top and, and you kind of reach. But you're never entirely sure where he moves into not being serious. <laughs> there, there are sections where you, you kind of have to pause and say, does he, does he want to do this or not? And then he will sometimes move entirely into uh, routines um, uh, where he's describing, you know, uh, oh, I will, we can get into that later. Um, um, and it's, uh, geez, I, I probably should have, you know, it, it's, What's sort of amazing about it, or most amazing about it, other than just sort of sort of weird, um, like how to what extent is this earnest? To what extent is he serious? To what extent is it just complete satire? Um, is that he manages, writing around 1970, to keep sounding like he's talking about modern information warfare? Yeah, um, yeah very right. much so. And and I guess actually the thing I, I should probably just um, start with, just to launch us, is just one. Um, passage from it which kind of could get across what i mean so let me um find the uh, right pass uh, i should have this page open here we go you construct fake news broadcasts on video camera for the pictures you can use mostly old footage mexico city will do for a riot in saigon and vice versa for a riot in Santiago, Chile, you can use the Londonderry pictures. Nobody knows the difference. Fires, earthquakes, plane crashes can be moved around. For example, here is a plane crash, 112 dead, north of Barcelona. And here is a plane crash in Toronto, 108 dead. So move the picture of the Barcelona plane crash over to Toronto and Toronto to Barcelona. And you scramble your fabricated news in with actual news broadcasts. You have an advantage, which your opposing player does not have. He must conceal his manipulations. You are under no such necessity. In fact, you can advertise the fact that you are writing news in advance and trying to make it happen by techniques which anybody can use. And that makes you news and a TV personality as well if you play it right. You want the widest possible co circulation for your cut-up videotapes. 
cut-up techniques could swamp the mass media with total illusion. And he goes on with, with more of this. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess I should just say that passage and hand it over to you. I, I don't know if I left something out in trying to discuss everything that goes on in this book. Um, I think that's, uh, that is, you know, the ayahuasca trip of guerrilla manuals is like in terms of the sensibility and the tone and experiential quality, uh, you know, a perfect description. And um, that the passage you read you know, the information warfare aspect of it, <clears throat> excuse me, is striking for, you know, the reason you just gave, which is the 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 forwardness of it, that it seems so modern. It's written in, uh, it was written when, in the late 60s? Around 1970. Okay, written around 1970. But yeah, that passage indicates it's strikingly modern. Um, but at the same time, it's also completist. You know, it's a top-to-bottom manual of sorts, a top-to-bottom ayahuasca trip, guerrilla manual of sorts for conducting this revolution. It's not only about information warfare. It's also about, you know, the different arms available, what sort of languages ought to be introduced in a new and, society. And um, when you say top-to-bottom, I mean, <clears throat> for example – Leopards and tigers released in South America would soon be driven to man-eating by the scarcity of game, and they would eat the CIA men first, <laughs> since they are bigger and slower. The good gray lard, they call it, licking the blood off each other's faces. Plentiful, helpless, no fur, the ideal food animal. You just picked out the funniest line for me, that they will eat the CIA men first. <laughs> and that's the moment when you know not everything in this book is serious. <laughs> so. I was... Uh... I've had like a uh, tumultuous relationship with Burroughs because the first thing I read when I was like uh, too young for it, frankly, was Naked Lunch. I think mm -hmm. I was like 16 or something. And it made me feel dumb. You know, I it was sort of alienating to me in a way that um, like I liked parts of it, but then I couldn't quite get it. And it was I think it was too uh, elusive and too it was too sophisticated for me in a way and it bothered me and so i decided um that i hated burroughs and burroughs was a hack and then in college i read junkie and was like oh man this is so good you know and then went back and reread naked lunch older better able to appreciate it with a slightly more developed attention span and still was bothered by parts of it. You know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not somebody who's totally convinced by the cut up method. Um, though I, I certainly see what Burroughs can do with it, but, um, but it gave me a greater appreciation for him. And then this reminded me that, you know, he's one of the funniest writers of yeah. the 20th century. It's not easy to be so funny without writing comedy and without introducing comic scenarios um but this this is like a 70 page manual it's hilarious it, you know it, it, it's he his reputation sort of suffers for the fact that people think of him as experimental and don't think of him as you know this great humorist and satirist um i mean i get the only other writer that who's, who's like 
like that for me is Kafka because no one talks about how funny he is. Although <laughs> to me, when I first like read his short stories, I was like, my goodness, he's, nobody ever told me this guy was funny. He's supposed to be dour, you know? Um, and with Burroughs, I would, I tell people, if you've never read Burroughs, don't start with one of these difficult novels um, or novels you might find difficult. He has made hilarious CDs of him doing readings um, of just like some of the funniest bits. And that, that is the best. I mean, Get the Dead City, uh, the album called Dead City Radio. Listen to that. It is the best possible um, introduction to him. If you like that, then pick up Naked Lunch or Place of Dead Roads or one of those books. Um, but because he's like a, a completely deadpan uh, stand-up comic uh, in, in these uh, recordings. Uh, and, and and that's the other thing is he has such a great voice. Um, he has such a great voice. And I got to say... Do people talk about how much Hunter S. Thompson ripped off from him? I've never uh, heard anyone say that before, but it he was definitely a big influence on Thompson and and, and the lifestyle too. Yeah. Um, you know, they both have that kind yeah. of hippie gut nut. Uh, I mean, not hippie yeah, and I mean, the voice also, and the lifestyle and the voice go together. I don't mean ripped off in a derogatory way either. You know, yeah. I think all all good writers rip people off, so I don't mean that as a put down, but the style that you see in high form here from Burroughs. So like the deadpan, uh, the deadpan sort of like deep state aficionado, military aficionado, who's totally unhinged and who's like deep in the organs of the sort of government conspiracy and the conspiracy of power. But utterly deranged inside of it uh you know what i mean that 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 um that voice i hadn't realized prior to reading this which i guess i had associated more with thompson actually it seems to me really comes from burroughs yeah yeah a, a um and and thompson kind of accidentally reinvented the cut up just by um they didn't have faxes then whatever it's called a mojo machine just sending in these random pages and the editors pasting them together. But yeah, I was actually just rereading his Kentucky Derby piece uh, the other week because when the Kentucky Derby came along and they actually had um, both black and white militias descending on the Kentucky Derby, I, I thought I, I want to reread Hunter Thompson um, describing, you know, him going around spreading these rumors of Black Panthers invading the Derby. Um, <laughs> and that he really did have that, um, that same sort of, especially in that in that uh, piece, I thought a bros kind of tone. But when I say voice, I don't just mean his authorial voice. I mean his actual voice. Um, that yeah, like, really. really dry Midwest. I used to be able to do a great bros impression, and I thought I would spring it on you guys, like when I read from it. And and I, but I actually tried it before I got on, and I realized it had sort of devolved into a Howard Cassell Im impression. So I, I won't <laughs> post that on anyone. Um, but he he really does. Um, no, I don't think there's any writer I can think of who performs his. I mean, like writer who you think of as a writer for the page, um, who performs his own work as well as as Burroughs does. You know that type falls all over himself to light the boss's cigarette. The doctor walks into the ward and says, rather warm in here. As one man, the do-rights break out in a sweat and rush around opening windows. Cold in here, isn't it? Immediately, the do-rights see their breath in the air, snatch blankets and bundle themselves up to a chorus of chattering teeth. 
front off his brown nose, fink to the bone. <clears throat> Doctor, when I die, I want to be buried right in the same coffin with you. What do you think, Phil? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan, uh, to okay. be honest. Um, and I, he's a fantastic writer. Uh, that's clear. Um, I, I think I ultimately don't like his project, um, for a variety of reasons. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the cut up method. Um, I think, you know, when you, when you talk about listening to him, uh, almost more as like a stand up comedian, um, or on a record, I mean, there's, you know, he had this huge influence on a lot of musicians, right? Yeah. And, it almost makes sense to sort of feel like, you know, his books or some of his books anyway, is almost like a mixtape um, of various different things. I mean, like, they don't really hang together, but they're these like really sharp bits that stay in your mind and sort of comic absurd bits that sort of then bleed into some things that actually feel quite profound. Um, I, I ultimately don't like, the <laughs> I think sort of under the guise of parody, he's having far too much pleasure with um with uh with with fascism and totalitarianism and their aesthetics, right? And and violence and cruelty. Um and so I think that um it's one of these things where you know, I remember Jake, you had this point that you made about sort of like alt-right trolls where, you know, sort of at a certain point, you know, you're supposed to be like, oh, you know, the sophisticated understanding is that they're, they're only, you know, sending out these anti-Semitic, um, uh, sort of memes or whatever, because they know it'll get people's goat. And, uh, and so you'll, you're supposed to look at them as performance art and at a certain point, you know, you sort of think, well, how about I just take you at your word and take the things that you're sort of, you know, spending the most time exulting in and delighting in. Um, and uh, if those are ugly, then I'm going to find them ugly. Um, I don't think his, uh, I don't find his work as sort of <laughs> liberating as some people do, but then I have a very different sort of sense of what, you know, sort of freedom consists of. So, but Nevertheless, uh, despite the fact that I really don't actually particularly like him, um, he's often quite fun to read. Uh, I find the style wears um, and probably goes better in snippets than sort of trying to, you know, take one in 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 one gulp. Um, and yeah, there's some fantastic things in here. So very happy well, and interested to discuss them. Yeah, that, that the way in which the style wears, and it wears both because. Um, it's constantly challenging you as the reader to um, like call it on its bluff, you know, because it never breaks character. And so there's something about the deadpan itself uh, because it's not nested inside of a story with a payoff, but is a kind of monologue. There's something about the deadpan itself that I think becomes wearying but then you know there's also the total disinterest in uh, the conventional story structure uh 
um, that's in evidence here to some extent, but, you know, obviously more so even in Naked Lunch, but like, you know, he has no interest in developing this in a, a kind of linear or sequential way. Uh, and I think obviously that's intentional, but it is, it is worrying. However, it's also liberating in the sense that I'm just like, I don't have to read this straight through. I can, you know, and also like, I'm like on a page, I'm less interested in it. And I'm, I'm just skimming this page, you know, right. whereas with other writers, I might do that, but I'll, it'll make me feel guilty. You know, and I'm <laughs> sinning you might miss something work. important. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I might miss something important. And also it's a character defect of mine, you know, that I'm, I lack the discipline and lack the endurance to read the things straight through that I should have to skim over something as a sign of failure. But the way this is written gives you license to do that. So, you know, that's the kind of flip side of it. But what Phil was, you know, the point that he's exulting in the possibilities of violence is undeniable. Right. Although I should However, say, I, I don't ever feel like when he adopts sort of the the fascist voice or the voice of like the, I don't ever feel like he's um, that there's, there's like a hint of him being a fascist. I feel like when the terrorism is where you have to sort of worry, what are you exalting in? Right. Um, Completely agree. I mean, like, I mean, like, I mean the most sort of um, fascistic part is where he, this is on page 20 where he's um, the uh, hanging old American soldiers for raping and murdering civilians. What the bloody fucking hell are civilians for? I mean, that's there's no mistaking that he's mocking the person saying that. Even right, but it's uh, when he's going about. You get the impression that if you could be sure that the uh, the wildcat or leopard, whatever it was, would eat the CIA men first, maybe he would be into that idea. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so but so there's a there's a bit from um, from Sontag's essay, uh, fascinating fascism on uh, Lenny. Riefenstahl, um, where she talks about how a very modern sensibility can appreciate Riefenstahl. He's writing this at a time when sort of Riefenstahl is being rehabilitated. And she writes, the ironies of pop sophistication make for a way of looking at Riefenstahl's work in which not only its formal beauty, but its political fervor are viewed as a form of aesthetic excess. Um, and alongside this detached appreciation of Riefenstahl as a response, whether conscious or unconscious, to the subject itself, which gives her work its power. Um, and then she talks about sort of, um, you know, this thought that national socialism stands only for brutishness and terror, but this is not true. It also, uh, fascism stands for ideals that are persistent today under their banners. The ideal of life is art, is the cult of beauty, the fetishism of courage, the dissolution of alienation and ecstatic feelings of the community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and her films are still effective because among other reasons, their longings are still felt because their content is a romantic ideal to which many continue to be attached, and which is expressed in such diverse modes of cultural dissidence and propaganda for new forms of communities, the youth rock culture, primal therapy, anti-psychiatry, third world camp following and belief in the occult. The exaltation of community does not preclude the search for absolute leadership. On the contrary, it may inevitably lead to it. Not surprisingly, a fair number of the young people now prostrating themselves before gurus and submitting to the most grotesquely autocratic discipline of former anti-authoritarians and the anti-elitists of the 1960s. And that feels like she's touching on a lot of the themes of, um, uh, of Burroughs' work right down to the uh, youth rock culture, anti-psychiatry, uh, and the belief in the occult. Yeah, that's 
That's um, interesting. I know that essay pretty well. It was uh, ran in the New York Review of Books, I think in 1976, maybe. Um, but I don't know that I go back and forth on Burroughs. I don't know that I see that reading applying to Burroughs. Burroughs strikes me as after something different. And this is part of what makes him stand out from the other beats also. You know, I, the he was the, considered the kind of father of the beats. but He was older. Whereas, what's that? He was older. He was older. Yeah. Yeah. He was older, right? So so that certainly lent a paternal aspect, though he didn't carry himself in a very fatherly way. Um but he also he had a very different... between between the drugs, the um, yeah, yeah, yeah. shooting the his shooting. wife in yeah. Yeah. Uh, and actually and not being a good father at all. The, yeah. Right, right, who like right. died at like age thirty three. I mean I mean actually the difficult part for Burroughs, I have to say with me, is that there's so much in his life that I don't like. That's what makes me it hard for me, um right. as someone who enjoys his his book so much to kind of reconcile with. Um well, leaving that aside for yeah. a second, the the fact of his biography, which is hard to avoid given how literary a biography it is i don't know that i see in and i've gone back and forth on this over the years i don't i don't see what phil is seeing and part of what differentiated him from the other beats i think is that they were all pursuing this you know ecstatic sincerity and burroughs definitely was not pursuing <laughs> an ecstatic sincerity yeah, for sure. and he had this much uh, more sort of modern wry interest in these kind of it was like bureaucratic Gnosticism, you know. Like <laughs> yeah. one of the things I think of with Burroughs is like you know how in all in Philip K. Dick's novels, there's like always um, somebody who works for an advertising company, and, and, or there's like somebody who's like selling um, insurance for a pharmaceutical company uh, or something like, you know, and, and they're always these office functionary, you know, it's like some Phil Dick novel that's set in 2092, you know, on a, a distant uh, moon. And yet um, there's some kind of familiar bureaucratic corporate structure. And he, Dick is, identifying the estrangement of reality within this kind of familiar routinized environment. And Burroughs in a way, in a comedic way, seems to me to be doing something similar. And I don't get the sense from Burroughs that what he wants finally is a, anything like a fascistic purity or originality you know, or a, a fascistic restoration. That's well. I, he I don't, he he lays out his utopia in here. I mean, I think he's completely sincere when he does the my own business thing. I mean, because he's written about that in more straightforward so places, of, like yeah, the job. So you go over that part then. Yeah, and 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 actually, even before I do that, I should say yeah. there's one other place where he kind of clearly. Because we were saying earlier, you know, that it's it's hard to tell what he's serious about or not. At the end, he does sort of go through these sort of weapons he talks about and says, uh, this is like um, almost the last thing in the book, like right before his 
Dirigir Hassani Sabah quote. He says, the weapons I wish to advocate are weapons that change consciousness, cut up, scrambling, use of videotapes, etc. The weapons of illusion. There is this kind of underlying argument that he doesn't quite make that there's something more ethical about information warfare um, than the terrorist stuff that he writes about. Um, but yeah, so his utopia is this idea of the my own business or MOB or mob. Um, and he says it assumes the right of every individual to possess his inner space, to do what interests him with people he wants to see. In some areas, this right was more respected 100 years ago than it, than it is in the permissive society. And then he talks a bit about how, you know, drugs before the um, Narcotics Act of whatever it was, 1914. Um, and then he starts talking about withdrawal units. He calls mobs for my own business. Um, and, and it's basically sort of voluntary associations of of people who respect other people's rights to do as they will. Um, and then he specifies that this does not include things like the Manson family, the mafia or the KKK, because uh, they do mess with other people. And he actually goes through these. Someone who steals your typewriter, starts barroom fights, kicks an old bum to death, is not minding his own business at all strangling someone and stealing his money, throwing acid in his face, lynching, beating, and burning people to death is not minding one's own business. This is all stuff we should know without him spelling it out, but he takes the time to spell it out in the middle of a terrorist manual, which is right. itself kind of telling. Um, uh, so, I mean, so there's this very kind of radical libertarian um, yes. a worldview running through this. Um, and I, I did a piece for reason about six years ago, which kind of looked at, um, Burroughs's, uh, I mean, among other things at Burroughs's politics, because at the very beginning of his writing career, he was sort of a far right guy. His favorite uh, columnist was Westbrook Pegler. He was writing letters to Allen Ginsberg talking about why he doesn't like minimum wage laws and rent control and, and denouncing socialism. And then the two decades after that, he's out in the streets of uh, Chicago in 1968 wearing a Eugene McCarthy a button and and like writing about you know struggling with you know the pigs and 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 so on um and and but it's not that he moved from far right to far left it was more like the kind of who he was feeling affinity with at at the same time that he had this um underlying anarchistic vision i i could say actually I, it's not in the article because i didn't hear about it till later but i have a friend um from lawrence kansas who um registered Burroughs to vote in 1988 and apparently Burroughs registered as a Democrat. So he was not in his <laughs> Westbrook Pegler phase anymore. Um, but he, he I, all through this, um, uh, through his life, I mean, his ideal is the ideal of, you know, what he called the Johnson family, which is something he picked up from, um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Um, uh, not Jack Black. Uh, Jack, yeah, it is Jack Black, um, but not the, Actor, Jack a, Black, uh, the hobo writer. Yeah, um, you you can't win the great yeah. uh, hobo memoir. You can't win. So he, he, uh, Jack Black that had newspaper this, like, man. Yeah. Yes, and and actually, um, his uh, first publication was ghostwritten by Rose Wilder Lane, who was one of the founding mothers of the modern libertarian movement. And I've heard it suggested, although I don't know if it's if it's actually true that Lane had a hand in shaping, you can't win as well. Um, and at any rate, black describes the sort of underground code. Um, and, the, uh, that's embraced by what he called the Johnson family. Um, the sort of beggars and outlaws 
that uh, they just want to mind their own business and let other people do what they want. And Burroughs has this whole, he's written out in different um, essays, including a, an introduction to a reprint of you, uh, you Can't Win, where he said there's this basic split between the Johnsons and the shits. The shits being his term for the people who want to mind your business for you. And there's actually a section in um, Revised Boy Scout Manual um, where he starts going on about uh, the shits. Um, it's a shitty world, so, they tell us. Always was and yeah. always will be part of a great plan. We don't like this plan. Slaughter the shits and feel the difference. Slaughter the shits in all walks of life. Um, but yes, so he's got that feels very like a sort of libertarian utopian vision. But, and I think this is important. Um, so you, you quoted earlier that bit about how the weapons he wishes to advocate are weapons that change consciousness, right? The weapons of illusion. Right. And, um, and that's a key part. Maybe we should sort of say what it is. So there's like guerrilla tactics for attacking authoritarians of all types, right? And then the at points during these like sort of semi-parodic, um, of varying degrees of seriousness sort of methods of, 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 um, attacking authority structures sort of things feel like they go too far. And the slaughter of the shits section is yeah. one of those, right. Where it sort of descends into just like horrific bloodbath. And you see that the, the people slaughtering the shits have become the new shits. Right. Um, right. And, uh, and then there's sort of like attacks on, you know, sort of basic notions of, of Western culture and things that we need to sort of pull out of our, our brains words such as the is of identity. Right. Uh, the definite article, the, uh, the sense of either or, which will be the concept of or will be deleted from the language and replaced by the juxtaposition and. And yeah. this is all uh, coming from general semantics, by the way. That whole section yeah. is him channeling, yeah, what's his name, Przybski. But go on, mm -hmm. sorry. And so one of the, um, one of the, the things that he's sort of uh, concerned with is he, he's not necessarily sure whether that or he doesn't think that libertarian vision is possible without a sort of real change of consciousness. And there's an interesting bit where he says, um, you can do more to destroy these enemies with tape recorders and video cameras than you can with machine guns. Videotape puts any number of machine guns into your hands. However, it is difficult to convince a revolutionary that this weapon is actually more potent than Glignite or guns. What do revolutionaries want? Vengeance or real change? Both, perhaps. It's difficult for those who have suffered outrageous brutality and oppression to forget about vengeance, which is why I postulated the wholesome catharsis of M.A. Actually, M.A. is the mass assassination of M enemy word and image. And this brings us to a basic question that every revolutionary must ask himself. Can I live without enemies? And that, um, that sort of inner change, <laughs> I guess, mm -hmm is as much of his concern um, as sort of the more overt power structures that the sort of, you know, violent interludes are, are drawing attention to because he, you know, I think he's, he's concerned with the human animal um, and what appeals to it. There's a way in which the, the manual kind of alternates between uh, programmatic parts of it where, you know, serious or not, parodic or not, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a a plan of action. And then other parts of it where rather than proposing the plan for the revolution, he's describing the structure of revolutions. So there's a part where he talks about how basically 
in order to really restart society, you have to totally. So when the rebels win, you know, he has this kind of, um, he has this schema where, uh, Jesse, you'll probably know this better from memory than I'm remembering it right now, but the schema involves in every revolutionary conflict, there's the rightists, then there's the, you know, the opposition essentially, um, and then I, I forget who the other group is, but it's like, you know, he's describing a kind of pattern that recurs in every uh, a generic pattern that recurs in every kind of revolutionary or insurrectionary movement. And he's that those parts of it, I, I find very interesting in part because I think that they, while over the top are you don't have to worry about the morality of it. Like, is he advocating slaughtering people because he's describing the structure of something and he, he gets it some, you know, I think important and um, like essential aspects of how this works. I'm not seeing the, Oh, here it is. The script is uh, different for every country or area of operation, but it is always one, two, three. And there he's describing this three-part general plan where one is an independence, Republican or reform party of exemplary behavior. Two is a terrorist underground. And then three is a terrorist right complete with personnel. Right. And so the, that's a, you know, a bit reductive perhaps, but he's, laying out the kind of structure of the narrative element of the modern revolutionary movement. So that's not a, you know, obviously he's, as far as this is a program for action, he's not suggesting you, you know, that the, the movement, whatever movement it is, whatever Boy Scout movement it is that he's the troop leader of, uh, should play all three parts, but he's describing. He sort of is, though. I mean, their, that's, that, I found this. Well, but he's saying that they're all part of. Yeah, the I mean, same but it, it, there's I mean, the sort way of paranoid I undercurrent that, where this sort of operating assumption that the left and the right can be different tentacles of the same organism, and he's you're sort of imagining this sort of master controller who's infiltrating. Um, or at least when I was reading it, I was imagining the sort of a master controller infiltrating all these different parties so he could deliberately play them off one another. Yeah. Oh, totally. But I don't think that's yeah. an undercurrent. I, I mean, I think that's the explicit theme of the whole thing. That's what I mean when I say bureaucratic Gnosticism. He's describing these secret forces lurking in what appear to be the structural differentiations of society, um, but where the the surface is never like so. For instance, he has this idea for this uh, program of random assassination, where by assassinating people who are kind of proximate uh, but, figures, of but you power, leave the cops alone. You you leave the cops you alone. Pick a like, from you, a you assassinate some random. Right. You assassinate some random oil executive, right? Not because you think that random oil executive is actually the person pulling the strings, but because 
by carrying out this program of random assassination, you'll smoke out the real figures of power who hitherto were lurking in the shadows, but will be forced to reveal their position. Um, but, you know, it's what's in military doctrine. It's a disruption tactic. You know, it's not the, this is not that far removed from reality. And, and that's what I mean when I say that there are parts of this where it's, hyperbolic it's uh you know it's obviously absurdist and funny but he's describing things that if you strip away the hyperbole are recognizable yeah, I, I mean i i i see that and, and i agree with you it's just that there is um when he was talking about sort of the one manipulator sort of operating the radical left the radical right and the reformist movement i i mean what that made me think of and this is naturally, as, as the guy who wrote a history of conspiracy theories. Um, there's a passage in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion where, you know, the conspirators are talking about how they will have, um, they will control like an anarchist paper and a Republican paper and a monarchist paper and use them all to mold opinion. And this was not original to the Protocols. It's one of the parts that was plagiarized um, from that the satire by the person who was not anti-Semitic and actually was going after Napoleon right. III. Um, and the and ideas like that have popped up in all sorts of different conspiratorial contexts as well. And what's different about um, Burroughs, I mean, as someone who sort of knows conspiracy narratives as, as in terms of genres, because um, I've read so many of them, um, he's sort of saying, you know, we the opposition could do this. It's almost like this fantasy of um, what if we were the octopus? Um, you know, maybe we're the smart ones, and you know, the CIA guys are a bunch of stupid folks who will be eaten by leopards. Um, we could have our people infiltrate all these different um, forces. And it's interesting whenever he cites Hassan e Sabah, who was the sort of quasi-legendary head of the old order of assassins um, in the medieval uh, Muslim world, um, because he's, that's a figure who pops up a lot in sort of the genealogies of the Illuminati and so on, like one of the uh, great uh, conspirators of the past in a lot of these conspiracy texts. But Burroughs um, really exalts him. I mean, he sort of sees that he imagines Hassani Sabai as having sort of like, and this doesn't come out fully in here, but it pops up in different texts as having this kind of liberated zone from which um, you could like reach your tentacles um, and liberate other territories in the same way that he imagines in other contexts, you know, pirate communes doing and here these guerrilla mobs and so on. So he's kind of, I mean, I mean, Burroughs is like this intensely paranoid writer, but here he sort of um, turns it on his head. This kind of gets to what Phil was talking about earlier, where he's, I mean, this is a kind of a place where he's imagining um, the opposition having the same sorts of um, abilities that it's sort of, that ordinarily you project on the totalitarian opposition. Well, but it's, it's uh, not an ideological totalitarianism, right? So he's not, suggesting that you that the revolutionary party should emulate this um like three-pronged controlled opposition approach so that it can bring about some idealistic harmony you know he's it, it's i'm he's turning to, it inside out i, I have yeah. in my mind that it fits together with his fascination with scientology but I can't quite put it together yet. Well, so his, I, I'm sorry. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Burroughs got interested in Scientology in the 1960s and then started denouncing it, but not in the ways that 
I mean, a lot of people, uh, you know, they have a Scientology period or they know people who do. Um, and they say, oh, my goodness, this this place is a fraud. Um, and it also manipulates people and all these awful things. He says, well, this is an authoritarian cult and it manipulates people and stuff. And he's monopolizing these techniques, which Burroughs was convinced really works. I mean, when he's talking in this sort of weird right. passage in here where he's talking about using e-beaners um, to decide, figure out if, the C, if someone's a CIA infiltrator, he really believed e-meters worked. It, it's almost as though if there were a critic of QAnon um, who was thought, you know, that Q guy, he's totally real, but he's up to no good. Um, <laughs> so and so and, and Hubbard pops Elron Hubbard pops up in here. Um, several times in this sort of um, uh, sort of odd, you know, liminal state um, uh, because, you know, he is someone who Burroughs takes far too seriously as, as a thinker, but, you know, recognizes as being a bad guy. Uh, and, and, and I think. It's sort of yeah. the same thing where Hubbard invents this whole cosmology uh, out of inverting his own paranoias and traumas and, I think Burroughs does a lot of that. Naked Lunch certainly has a lot of that. The final point I want to make about the politics of it, though, because this is sort of forming in my mind as we're talking about it, is you have on the one – first of all, let me just say up front, I don't think it fits together finally. (laughs) So, like, there's not – there's no answer – to what does the political program mean if you're able to solve the equation of what Syria, you know, it's, it, that's not what this is, but something comes through, which Phil, I think goes to the point you were making about uh, what I wrote years ago about sort of trolling in the all right, which was that meaning transmits itself through uh, patterns of action and behavior. And that, um, you know, the, the degree to which the fluidity of words is indeterminate is only true if you uh, treat them as floating platonic objects uh, completely divorced from uh, behavior and context, right? But once you, as is inevitably the case, once you understand that those words are embedded in certain behaviors and patterns of behaviors, et cetera, they are no longer infinitely uh, fluid or, or uh, infinitely malleable. They then are, are you know, constrained by certain uh, binding, binding parameters. And what, what Burroughs is writing here goes all over the place, but certain things come through in the aggregate, right? Like a, a feeling transmits in the aggregate. And on the one hand, he wants to co-opt the Gnostic deep state for the opposition. You know, he wants to emulate this uh, this operation of power through these um, different, you know, the, the different groups that are being controlled. On the other hand, though, right, he recognizes, as with the uh, kind of the revolutionary terror passage that Phil described before, he recognizes that it will go too far. And he actually, in his way, tries to suggest that the revolutionary program needs to be totalizing to avoid that, right? Like, so he's talking about like the conditions to succeed and he's saying they never go far enough, you know, like the 
colonist throws out the colonizer, but they keep the calendar or they keep the language or whatever. It's, they never fully exercise the influence of the oppressor. Right. He thinks Bolivar should have been what, Chinese. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, that's actually one of those great moments where you're not entirely sure. I mean, you know, he shifts from saying he's something, believe, something that he believes into something satiric, but it's not entirely queer, uh, clear in that discussion of Bolivar where that shifts happens because it's like, because right. he was, right. So he starts yeah. off with Bolivar, right. And he says, Bolivar didn't go far enough. Just one second. Let me quickly read this. He says, you know, that what you need to do actually is proclaim a new era and set up a new calendar, replace alien language, destroy or neutralize alien gods, destroy alien machinery of governmental control, take wealth and land from individual aliens. Um, you know, what I thought about when I was reading that actually was Ataturk, right? And mm. uh, this was Ataturk's attempt, very violent, very uh, revolutionary, modernizing uh, of Turkey, which involved changing the alphabet, rewriting Turkish history, you know, this, this program changing the calendar, uh, forced secularization. It was a... It Dotting was the landscape the with statues. With, yeah. Yeah, but then the, you you go on like the the payoff is eventually he's saying well he should have just adopted Chinese as the language I mean it becomes this absurd thing that presumably Burroughs did not believe <laughs> um, and this is one of the first things that you read in the in the book I mean it sort of sets you up for what kind of book you're reading where you can't always tell you know where this is where this is going because. Uh, create, making Chinese the official language of Latin America is just is the most absurd possible you know payoff of that particular argument. Um, but the beginning of that argument is something that we know Burroughs believes. I mean, and and he makes you know not a bad case for it. So where exactly in that art? I mean, and it could be he doesn't know. It could be he was just typing along and says, ah, this would be a funny way to continue. This, you know, um, but that that's but that's on like the page four or five. You know, it, it's. Um, it's a pretty good way of just setting you up for um, what you're, you know, what you're in for. I, I should say um, also just in general, in, in general, in Burroughs' work, he just loves to affect the pose of an old con letting the marks in on how a confidence the game is done, you know? And yeah, yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, and he always, yeah, yeah. or not always, but he frequently will make himself uh, like, you know, the, the target, like he will play the role he's, uh, of of the of his satiric target, and that's often not just because um, uh, that's one way to do the story, but because he he knows that you know he's been a shit as well as a Johnson in his life. He deserves to indict himself along with everyone else. Um, you know, we all have this within uh, within ourselves, and and certainly he does. Um, I and I, I mean, and he comes yeah. from power. Right. Which I, I think has something to do with that, certainly. And Jesse, I, you know, his biography better than I do, I'm sure. But um, he was from a, a wealthy uh, typewriter yeah, uh, family. His, no? I think it was his grandfather, who was also named William S. Burroughs, um, who, you know, invented, I think, the adding machine um, or a version of the adding machine. Yeah. Uh, and that's and as a result, there was a- <laughs> which is perfect for where yeah. he ends up. It's just amazing. and and. Uh, one of his collection of, of essays is called <laughs> The Adding Machine, um, which is sort of his uh, tribute of sorts. 
He famously had a an allowance of of I think two hundred dollars a, a Until month. He was fifty, um, uh, and I and I yeah, uh, yeah and, and the um, the piece I wrote, I I uh, you know wondered because with that cushion, he was able to just sort of drift from one odd job or failed business venture to another while he was writing, um, and it yeah. was. Grew marijuana for yeah, a time. He had a, a, a farm <laughs> crossing crossing the border where he was known as Willie Lafa, uh, Willie La Willie Laputa. <laughs> his his nickname. But um, by the way, if you know the country song "Cocaine Blues," um, which uh, there are a lot of different versions, but Johnny Cash sang it on Wilson Prison. I mean, he's about a guy named William Lee who uh, shoots his wife and runs down to Mexico. And there was a period in my life where I thought, oh, could it be yeah. that he's writing about? But no, <laughs> it's based on an older song. It's just because um, William Lee is one of his pseudonyms. Um, but if you mm-hmm. you know read some bros and then listen to that song, there's a, a weird uh, a shock of recognition. Yeah. Isn't isn't he Lee in, in On the Road? Um, he's. He's he's no, what's, his, what's his name in what is uh, he? Old Bully? Is that it? Not Bull. Something old Bully. Bull, yeah, right? he's, yeah. Old Bully old, in, old in On the Road. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, that's Burroughs. Yeah. In New Orleans, I think, right? Yeah. Old so Bully. Should, you know what uh, I liked him in was he has some funny lines in um you know, Legs McNeil has that oral history of punk, please kill me. And it's like the one great exception. You know, the general rule is the absolute worst thing in the world is uh, the absolute worst thing in the world is people reminiscing about punk in the 70s. I, I'm sorry <laughs> to say it's, uh, it's horrible, but um, that, book is, that book is fantastic. I just I love oral histories, and that one is endlessly readable, uh, full of phenomenal stories, and Burroughs has some funny lines in it as i recall um let me point out one other thing about the kind of political prescience or weird synchronicities here i mean i gotta say this is it's a hard text to talk about i (laughs) yeah i i feel like with every step of this conversation the the listeners are saying no what now (laughs) you you like suddenly drop him like a phrase like mass assassination like wait they didn't mention that before um yeah yeah okay cool so that's what i want to talk about now is the mass assassination part that's exactly what i'm thinking about not even because it's especially lurid or anything but so there it starts off actually before mass assassination i think the first uh, assassination he brings up is random assassination. No, I'm sorry. I'm looking at it now. So it starts off with assassination by list. Then he talks about random assassination. Um, and then he gets to uh, mass assassination in here somewhere. Anyway, so the difference between the two is that um, assassination by list, uh, you don't, he says, you don't go after the politicians, narcs, and pigs. They are servants who obey orders. So the targets are not the front man, but the higher ups behind the scenes. Okay. So that's assassination by list. You go after the higher ups behind the scenes, recognizing that they're not even the real shot callers, but by assassinating them according to a list, you'll smoke out the real shot callers. And then random assassination, I feel, doesn't really require any explanation at all. It's just the cut up method applied to the snuffing out of human lives. Um, but what it does remind me of, all right, is the 
crypto anarchist uh, manifesto, which was written in 1992 by Timothy mm-hmm. C. May, uh, which I've written about before. I wrote about that in uh, was it the baffler? Where did I write about it? Anyway, oh yeah. yes, it was in the baffler piece on Cody Wilson. Um, and so May is a an interesting guy. He's the author of the crypto anarchist manifesto. He was a uh, worked at Intel. I think he was a, a physicist at Intel. And in his vision of the radical libertarian possibilities of cryptography, um, one of the innovations he had is what he called assassination markets. And he talked specifically about using the assassination markets to go after Congress rodents. Um, and, you know, he had an idea uh, that was darker than Burroughs, but also deliberately hyperbolic, uh, but not deliberately parodic or not, I should say, not deliberate, deliberately satirical in the way that uh, Burroughs is, um, where he has this idea for essentially setting up these anonymized crypto protected assassination markets where you could pay to assassinate people and the pay the, the anonymous payment to assassinate people in the kind of political vision that may is laying out is supposed to be a check on abuses of power it's obviously also a um, horrifying but permanent terror state uh, wherein money gives you the right to end another person's life. But anyway, just the final point is that the, the assassination market, you know, to bring this to the kind of conclusion of what would this look like in practice? Well, part of what it would look like in practice is randomized killing to affect the revolutionary change that overthrows whatever the current power structure is and um, brings in, you know, ushers in the era of the MOB, the mind your own business um, future. But uh, if you take it at all seriously, and if you say to yourself, okay, well, he doesn't really mean assassinations, obviously, but maybe he's justifying some degree of, violence and maybe he's justifying some degree of co-opting the current power structure and current power strategies of the state to use it against the state, right? What that converges with in terms of what I think is a very sophisticated appreciation of information warfare where Jesse started off is in part the ability to use these anonymizing and, um, reality obscuring technologies in order to hit the state where it hurts in ways that make it very difficult as a, an isolated citizen for the state to hit back. Right. But also that undermine the state um, and undermine confidence in the state. I mean, so, you know, uh, in the random assassination, the reason that you don't uh, kill the police and the military, right? There's a completely random, there's no pattern, but you exempt the police and the military. And the reason they're accorded this position of privilege to stir resentment in the population. 
And so set the, set the stage for a subsequent accusation that rightist plotters carried out the RA to create an emergency and seize power. Okay, so that actually reminds me um, of the early sort of Zarqawi tactics, right? So, you know, sort of um, they would kill uh, garbage collectors, right? Um, anybody associated with the state. Uh, and you think, why, you know, why would, um, you know, at that stage, there were still, they weren't even... Um, like monotheism and jihad still was the name before they, you know, came AQI and the ISIS. You know, why are you killing garbage men? Well, you're you're trying to create a complete and utter collapse of the state, right? And then in the collapse, then maybe you can build something, right? Then maybe you can take power, right? In Mosul, um, you know, as they were sort of moving in, they'd create chaos, they'd create this sort of increasingly unstable situation. People would blame the government for not being able to protect them. Um, and, and the, you know, sort of the, the instability that they had fostered worked to their benefit. And you're talking about now post-Zarqawi, Phil, right? You're talking about the ISIS siege on Mosul. So yeah, that that's post Zarqawi. So the, the initial the initial like they're killing garbage men. That was you know that was like early early days. I mean this was sort of always part of his strategy was just oh, sort of, I, uh, okay, yes because that that's what they did again. Yeah. Right? So the ISIS the the military siege on Mosul, the sweeping in um, in you know the motorized assault on Mosul mm-hmm. followed a long season of assassinations targeting government officials. So that was precisely the strategy that ISIS used in 2013 into 2014. Right. The, the the sort of like when they kind of recouped after 2007, sort of figure out a strategy in, in response to the awakening, I think it was titled something like, um, uh, one bullet for the crusaders, nine bullets for the apostates. Right. Um, you know, you were supposed to spend most of your fire on, on the sort of home population that, that um, was associated with the power structure you don't like. Yeah. The total lack of ideological fervor is notable here, though. You right. know, like the, the over... It's become an aesthetic, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, not to go back to the the well, go back to that Sontag right uh, essay where she talks about like how Nazi imagery has become like a part of like sadomasochistic um, sort of fetishistic sex, right? Um, and like it makes sense, right? Like you know, uh, never before was the relation of masters and slaves so consciously aestheticized. Saad had to make up his theater of punishment and delight from scratch, improvising the decor and costumes and blasphemous rites. Now there is a master scenario available to everyone. The color is black, the material is leather, the seduction is beauty, the justification is honesty, the aim is ecstasy, the fantasy is death. Um, and that's, I think, you know, part of the thrill. At some point she stopped writing about Riefenstahl and started writing about Ilsa Shewolf of the SS, it sounds like. It's, it's been a long time since yeah. I've read that. Um, yeah. Um, should we talk about what this would look like if you take it seriously? You know, we, we've sort of, uh, you tried to yeah. live your life by this manifesto. I don't know if anyone can live their life by this manifesto. <laughs> it's, it's not a guide <laughs> to living unless you want to spend all your time either, um, you know, assassinating people or creating, um, cut up propaganda. Um, 
which some well, people do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the sort of thing is in a way we're living in this manifesto. I mean, the info warfare parts do, as I was saying before, they feel really um, prescient. I mean, there's it's all analog. That's the weird thing is that they keep saying tape. Um, and I, I if I don't know if you guys have any like radio background or anything, but it, it's sort of. I, that I think of old reel to reel machines and it's very, um, and, and that, that's sort of jarring and went in the context of these things that we associate with the digital age. But, um, it, I mean, when the people talk about meme warfare and, you know, when the people talk about meme magic, I mean, there's, there's parts in here, um, where his, um, like his, uh, where what he's he, where he's describing gradually evolves or devolves into talking about black magic, um, printed presented in the sort of super scientific but pseudo scientific garb, like you know techniques for like yeah. creating riots with like with sounds and so on. And, and it's uh, I I'm not even sure where I'm going with this. It, it's just it, yeah. no no no. I, I think mean, that's I mean, really it, honest. It's like the sort of pre modern and post modern at the same time, uh, and it's with this whole aesthetic of there's this whole sort of um, world around 1970 where, I mean, this isn't the only thing I've seen from that period that seems to do the whole cyber culture thing in advance. Like if you look at old issues of radical software magazine or uh, the people who are doing uh guerrilla TV um, and trying to spread around porta packs as a, as a, as like the a way of, you know, recording stuff on the fly and so on. It really feels like the sort of, early analog precursor um, to the cyber culture we're living in now. But Burroughs is the one who sort of takes that and imagines, um, he, he sort of like imagines that world where you've got, uh, you know, the alt-right on one side and these anarchists over here and, and these, um, you know, chaos magicians who are, uh, you know, all, and, I, and in some ways he overdoes it because I think the actual effectiveness of this stuff is incredibly overstated um, in, in ways that he does in here right. too. Um, but you can see, um, you know, echoes of the sorts of claims people make now in what he was writing then. And in some cases, I think people were probably directly influenced by Burroughs. Maybe, I mean, this book wasn't out yet, but he had written other things and, and parts of this appeared. And at other times, I think it's just, you know, this chain of transmission um, from one counterculture figure to another. The interesting, thing, the interesting thing about his aesthetic, I think, you know, he's a talented writer. His metaphors are good. Um, his images are good. Um, you know, he's got a nice clip. So, you know, he's got like he's just talented as a prose writer. But the sensibility, what makes it interesting in part is this, the weird juxtaposition of the old money Midwestern Protestant with the paranoid occult gay <laughs> junkie um, insurrectionary, you know, or insurrectionary is the wrong word. Anarchist is a better word, you know? So he's like, it's this, it's the, like, the guy who should have gone into the family business and, you know, is from a, a good, good stock mainline Protestant family who sort of decides that there's some kind of like, um, you know, occult satanic force at work in the surface uh, you know, at, at work in the kind of organs of society 
and devotes himself to figuring out these sort of occult mysteries, often through means that um, seem ridiculous, Scientology most of all, but that, you know, you can sort of see the appeal of Scientology for Burroughs, not only because Hubbard was a uh, an author of cheap science fiction paperbacks, but because of the tremendous audacity of it, you know, and the, the kind of the, the claims to total mastery through these psychological ploys. I mean, it makes sense to me on that level. What's Scientology about in part, it's about getting people to divulge their secrets and then using the secrets they divulge as levers to control their lives. And Burroughs was somebody who it seems to me was always working out these sort of familial dramas and um, sort of internal drama and, and projecting that out into large scale conspiracies and machinations and, and, what this would look like in practice. I mean, I couldn't begin to tell you assassination markets in part, you know what it would look like in practice? Um, something much stranger, a total blinding disorientation, something frankly, not entirely unfamiliar in the present moment. You know, it wouldn't look like an organized coup. It, this is not Edward Lutvak's coup. It wouldn't look like, a Maoist takeover. It wouldn't look like a fascist coup. It would look like a total information warfare derangement where you couldn't tell what was serious from what was a joke. And you were being bombarded with uh, imitations that co-opted the forms of real power and so in that way were themselves real you know what it would look like it just hit me what it would look like um it looks like me a couple months ago in baltimore reading reports from the capitol hill autonomous zone that completely contradict each other about what's going on video (laughs) snippets which i cannot tell if they're really telling or if they're out of context not being able to go there and report, which I really wanted to do because I lived in Seattle for a little while. I know people there. I, I, I am familiar with this ideological milieu, but there's a fucking plague, which if there's any Burroughs thing to keep you from traveling across the country. Um, I mean, that sort of feeling of disorientation during a plague while allegedly yeah. a mob in the Burroughs sense or possibly a mob in the old sense, depending on who you're listening to, has taken control of a few blocks of, uh, of uh, an old American city. Um, that, that is um, the experience of the revised Boy Scout manual. Right. That as comedy. as comedy, yeah. Right. Yeah, we didn't yeah. even talk about the bits about releasing a virus in this, but it's in there. Um, <laughs> There's a lot in here. Perfect. There's a lot yeah. we didn't talk. And I got to say, this should is, we get, go on to the? Can I just add? For yeah. one, this is less than a hundred pages, people. There is so much in here, and yet you could read read this thing in an afternoon. Um, yeah, I got to say, I highly recommend it. Um, I think that it's uh, worth your time. It's funny as hell. And again, you can skip around in it. Um, if you 
read a passage and you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what this is talking about. Just go to the next passage. You don't need to understand yeah. it. Let's I mean, I, I, uh, I hated it, but it's all, it's probably worth your time. Uh, <laughs> everything that these guys are saying is true. <laughs> Maybe it's worth hating, you know? Yeah. No, no, I think, I think, I uh, think, I, I, you can sometimes very productively not like something. <laughs> And, and sure, this is, sure. th- th- this is, uh, there are plenty of things, there are plenty of things that I don't like because they're just bad. Uh, this is, just, this is rich. Uh, <laughs> you will not be bored hating it. <laughs> so, all right. So now the next thing we've got up is the Lambeth walk, which is this two minute Lambeth walk Nazi style, which is this two minute video, which as I understand it, Jesse, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is, uh, so it's images from the right. Triumph of the Will, speaking right. of Riefenstahl, this that have the, been right. caught speaking up. Of Burroughs, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's, it's from the UK Ministry of Information, right? So when I first watched it, I didn't know anything about it. And I assumed that it was like, I assumed that it had been made, you know, yesterday. It feels right? like a modern YouTube um, video. Yeah. It feels like a modern YouTube video. It's actually from 1942. And uh, so the Lambeth Walk was basically like a silly dance that was popular in the 30s um, that was denounced by a Nazi as Jewish mischief and animalistic hopping. Um, And so this guy, Charles Ridley at the UK Ministry of Information, uh, recut and reversed footage from The Triumph of the Will uh, to make it look like the Nazis are dancing to the Lambeth Walk. And it's kind of amazing. Um, uh, apparently, when it was screened for Goebbels, he ran out of the screening room in a rage. Um, and the Danish resistance used to enter cinemas and occupy Denmark and force projectionists to show it. Uh, so, yeah, it's worth it's worth checking out. Yeah, it's... It is um, very modern feeling, though it's um, what I say. Like it's a bit more restrained than the modern version would be. Right. So you you can see you could see this and think, "Oh, this was made recently," but something feels slightly off about it. And the thing that feels slightly off is that it's it's not tentative in a way that the modern version wouldn't be, but it's. Um, like it's less insistent than the modern version would be. There's something sort of um, almost light about it. And, and we should say that the subtitle, which is a great subtitle is, um, or the sub credit rather is assisted by the Gestapo Hepcats. <laughs> so, you know, it's like the Hepcat triumph of the will. It's mocking the Nazis through this use of, um, cut up imagery or cut up video uh, scored with this music from this uh, popular dance at the time. And it's how to put it. It's not like a pointed satire. Right? It's not like Chaplin or something. It's not the, the great dictator where there's a, uh, a real political message you know, it's closer to the modern meme style. You know, Chaplin is a more classical version of satire in that it's a kind of weaponized irreverence. 
this is more like a meme insofar as it's just a free floating like uh, unit I, I, of mockery. It is weaponized you know? reverence. The, dis- the difference is, I mean, at the end of the Great Dictator, and this is actually one of the reasons why I, I don't like the Great Dictator, although there's certain scenes in it that are very funny. The um, the person who's been posing as as Hitler, you know, comes up and suddenly delivers this speech on the importance of tolerance or democracy. I don't remember the word. I just remember that it was completely out of character for this person to have it in him. And it's like he had to beat you over the head with, you know, Hitler is bad, which is one of the most obvious. You don't need to beat someone over the head. And you've just done all this satire to get it across. Um, This is a a satire that sort of, I mean, satire isn't the right word for it, but this is um, a bit of propaganda, which sort of trusts you to see that they're making um, something pompous into something ridiculous. Um, and, you know, people can miss. I I remember putting this up on a, a blog like more than 10 years ago, just saying, like, this is one of my favorite propaganda films. And there was one commenter that says, what, you like a Nazi propaganda film? I was like, how could you possibly think that this was, you know, produced by the Nazis? You know, <laughs> what they're doing to this. But it's... Um, I, I, I have a history with this film because I did not see it for the first time in YouTube, um, or at least not. I might have seen the full version for the first time on YouTube, but um, in uh, high school, um, in a history class, we were watching a documentary on World War II. And this would have been, you know, mid to late 80s, whatever year we were learning about um, World War II. And they just in the middle of this documentary, they cut to this. um, And of course, the whole class just erupts in laughter. And it was we were coming to this at, at a stage where we hadn't seen this done on YouTube. We had not seen Hitler cut so that it looks like he's singing Born to be Alive and, you know, all the other um, sort of, uh, you know, matchups and cutups that are up there. It was entirely fresh to us. Um, at most, we might have seen something sort of similar on Monty Python or something like that. And I imagine audiences in the early 1940s, without even the framework of, uh, you know, Terry Gilliam animation or something like that, which is sort of resembles, um, you know, coming to this and, and how this sort of effectiveness that, that it must have had. Um, because at that point, you know, I don't think there was anything quite like this um, that had been made. Uh, I mean, there, there have been experimental no, filmmakers who have done similar it, techniques, but not to this effect and not with this purpose. Right, and not, right. I think that... I was doing a little reading. I'm not sure that the technique was as original, but the use of it in this way, the particular, you know, the cutting nature of it, I think was new. To show you how effective it is, uh, how powerful the technique is, it's, it's literally going around on Twitter right now, virtually the same thing. There's a meme with... Biden at this speech the other day where he gets in front of the podium and, you know, the actual event, I forget which event it was, but Biden was a, given a speech somewhere and he holds his cell phone up to the microphone at the podium and he's playing uh, this music. Uh, maybe one of you guys knows more about the context. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he's, it's supposed to be like he's playing and he's like sort of bopping along in a, um, you know, a kind of uh, the way you would bop along if you were a man that age holding the <laughs> cell phone to a microphone. You know, it's not the most graceful thing in the world, but it's also like it's not 
bad. It doesn't make him look bad. He looks like, you know, it's like a hokey move, but, but it by itself, it's not that bad. But in the, the versions that are going around in the meme, when he holds up the cell phone to the microphone, he's either playing this WAP song by uh, Cardi B and Megan the Stallion, or he, or it's "Fuck the Police." Um, you know, I've seen a few different versions, but the point is, there are these, I uh, you know, vulgar, um, outrageous songs overdubbed on what had been this very anodyne, you know, middle of the road, um, totally middle of the road, I don't know, but inoffensive music, right? And what it does is it takes this scene, which by itself doesn't actually make Biden look bad, right? Like the same way Triumph of the Will didn't make the Nazis look bad to Nazis, right? Or to to other people, um, uh, I think. But the the ability to subvert the the original context and to, you know, insert this ridiculousness into it. It's sometimes you're tempted to think that you're exposing the ridiculousness of the event. Um, but you can also in a skillful way, just recontextualize something where you're not necessarily exposing anything i mean in the case of the biden thing it's taking something that otherwise would have been not not especially maybe a little bit silly a little bit hokey but not something that's a vulnerability for him but by putting on these outrageous songs it's not just like parodic or mocking him you know it's also it makes him look foolish in a way that um it's powerful is it? <laughs> I mean, it's information warfare. I'm saying, like, it's a powerful form of information warfare. I, mean, I know to that I. Oh, I mean, ahead. I think. I, I was going to say, I know that the risk for me, I was something like this, is to believe that you can defeat, you know, the Nazis by just mocking them in this way. You know, it, it's. I mean, some people you can uh, sort of make go away through mockery. Sometimes you need something beyond that. Um, but I think it's an effect. I mean, I don't know, Jake, you call yourself, you know, the knocker off of tall hats or whatever. I mean, is there sort of like a, a part of you that uh, sees that, you know, has that fantasy that, um, you know, Lambeth walk Nazi style is uh, is the great weapon that can be used to defeat evil? No, no, no. it's just uh, adopting <laughs> no. that. Is your... No, 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 no. I, I don't think I think that it's. Uh... It, it's a way of insisting on truth, but I don't think that the insistence on truth by itself is sufficient to defeat evil. Necessary, but, but not it sufficient. A, is it a tempting fantasy so, for you, or is that not something that... Uh... No, I don't... Um, is it a... No, be, I, but I don't, it doesn't... I don't need it to be... Or it, it doesn't uh call to me to see it as a way of defeating evil in order to feel that it's um to see it as something um like i i I see a nobility in it without it without seeing it as something that defeats evil i'm still there's a romantic quality to it so i'm drawn to it in the sense that i think that there's 
you know, there's a kind of romantic vocation in it, but I don't have any sense of it. Um, I don't have any sense of it as being something that defeats evil in pitched battle. I have a sense of it as being something that delivers small measures of justice um, and uh, more quotidian I, I think setting. part of the Burroughs fantasy is the, I mean, when he's not in terrorist mode, when, when he says the weapons I wish to advocate are weapons that change consciousness, there is kind of an underlying wistful, I mean, what if, um, what if this could be all that, all that we use is um, cutting up media um, like in this Lambeth walk thing or like in those memes traveling around. And, and that would be um, the most important weapon in our quiver. Um, but I'm sorry, Phil, you were starting to talk a while ago and we uh, stepped on you. Well, no. So, you know, I think that, I mean, the sort of like mock <laughs> mockery as a, as a means of, you know, political commentary or sort of, uh, you know, like, like this is the daily show. This is, um, Samantha B. This is, you know, at a certain point, this becomes, uh, this is, is like a codified part of, of how we do, um, how we consume our news, right? And I think one of the critiques of uh, of that sort of thing is like, you know, is the is the Daily Show, or, you know, was the Daily Show actually performing the political work that people thought it was, right? Um, and I think that this is useful in some sense. It makes people look ridiculous, especially when you have. You know, I think with the Nazis, because the aesthetic of Nazism was so important, um, I think that sort of fighting it on aesthetic grounds uh, makes a lot of sense. And 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 sort of showing the ways in which that 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 aesthetic can be ridiculous um, is important. But I think that it's it's uh, uh, you know there 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 are limits to what you can do. Um, that that said, uh, I do think. You know, there's this interesting. Do you maybe read um, John Baskin's uh, article? I think it was in the New York Review, Review of Books on on uh, a hidden life, the recent Malick film, uh, and um, and Knausgaard, uh, and both of their sort of like relation to. It's 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 very very good, and he talks about how um, uh, the Malick is is interested in. Um, in the aesthetics of fascism and then the sort of resistance to it as something that's happening at a sort of different level from, uh, from sort of, from ideology, sort of pure ideology. And, and he quotes uh, A.O. Scott's review of, uh, of the movie and he, and uh, you know, Scott uh, confesses his incomprehen- incomprehension of Franz's motives. Franz, who was a you know, resistor, is ultimately killed because he uh, uh, refused to, to fight for the Nazis. Uh, may be related to his personal per- preference for quote historical and political insight over matters of art and spirit. It is refreshing to hear a critic be so honest about their intellectual biases. It's also revealing of the assumptions that seem to pervade the broader discussion in recent years, carried on mostly by academics and op-ed writers, as opposed to artists, about the relationship between the politics of 1930s Europe and those of our own time. But what if the capacity to appreciate the relevance of Nazism to our own time is, in fact, inseparable from our willingness to attend to, quote, matters of art and spirit? 
um, and he, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, argues Franz's belief, like the belief of the fascists, is based on a feeling. This is why his resistance has seemed opaque to those more accustomed to researching and fact-checking the weight of virtue. Um, and so, you know, when I am looking at something like this, I, uh, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's kind of delightful, um, and I, you know, there's there's that sort of caution where I feel like, you know, we can we can become so enamored of our own clever tricks and and the work that we think that we're doing. Um, uh, but at the same time, it does seem to make sense that uh, in some of these battles, sort of aesthetic weapons might uh, might be far more valuable than than we like to give them credit for. Let me just suggest that there remains the possibility that if we were to get the world of um, Burroughs' utopian dreams where, you know, we could give um, peace a chance and information warfare and weaponized cut-up method replaces guns and tanks, that could be a far worse and more torturous world in some ways. I don't know? think it's, um, I don't think it's worse. I don't know. I mean, maybe people aren't being killed. That is a, um, a step forward. Um, well, they're still going to die. So maybe they could be tortured for their remaining days. I mean, I, I'm just saying like the idea that information warfare represents, um, a positive alternative to conventional warfare strikes me as maybe overly so hopeful. I, um, but uh, before he died, I, I interviewed Gene Sharp several times and Gene Sharp, of course, was like the great theorist of um, nonviolent um, civil resistance um, and not limiting things to just uh, like uh, mocking people, though he talked about that, but also, you know, organized refusal of orders among the, among the opposing military and, and other, um, uh, uh, techniques. Um, and an interesting thing about him is he got his start as a pacifist. Like he uh, was a conscientious objector, I think during the Korean war. Um, and although he then devoted his life to, um, to, you know, you know, developing and discovering and looking at the uses of these uh, nonviolent techniques of conflict, he hated, um, word pacifist i called him one in the first article i wrote that mentioned him and he wrote this sort of angry thing great article except never call me a pacifist again um because he saw that as a moralistic position and he really i mean he was someone who in his magnum opus he talked about the uses of nonviolent techniques by the civil rights movement he also talked about the way segregationists used it there's no question whose side he was on but he was like we can learn about these techniques right, from anywhere right. And he killed, and I, this is very roundabout, but this is what you made me think of, is he told a story once um, where he was giving a talk about um, how nonviolent resistance can be used against foreign invasions and foreign occupations. And he said someone in the audience was very angry, this sort of like old pacifist, and stood up and said, all you are doing is taking the violence out of war. And it, it, to me, it's like, well, you know what, if he's thinking strategically and so on, but it can actually, um, you know, do this with fewer casualties, that's actually a good thing. I, I still, I, I would think, um, even if you're not willing to go full team sharp. And, and I'm, uh, I'm thinking about that here, you saying it, it's worse. I, I, if you could actually have the full substitution, I don't think it would be worse. Um, 
Yeah, maybe I'm being glib, but I was also th- you're suggesting the decentralized um, application where it becomes, you know, the weapon of the powerless. I was thinking of it also in terms of centralized monopolistic approaches to information mm-hmm. warfare, where it's not the resistor using these methods. It's, um, oh, I don't know the technology platform, let's say something like that. But um, because I, I, I think ultimately that they're, um, they, they are, you know, they're not dissimilar is what I'm getting at. Like it's sort of Burroughs fundamental point in a way. It's the sort of the cynical heart of the Burroughs, which is that, you know, what, what's, you know, it's what you were saying, Jesse, it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to, recreate the thing that the state does and then use it against the state. But, you know, the state can also recreate the thing you're doing and use it against you. So, um, I don't know. I, I don't, um, maybe well, that's, that's clear, sort of the sure history of the last, you know, 15 years or so, uh, or, or more like, you know, 10 years, eh? there's a sort of pendulum swinging back and forth where, you know, first you will have, you know, mass movements in the Arab Spring and so forth, um, figuring out ways to um, bring, you know, the Internet and, and text messaging and, and other, you know, these new technologies are then new um, into their work. And then um, governments, you know, figuring out ways to use the same technologies for surveillance and propaganda and to spread disinformation. And then recently, I think, there's been sort of a swinging of the um, pendulum back with a sort of mass surge of movements um, in 2018, 2019, and then a bit of a break with the pandemic, but, you know, rushing back since then, you know, look at Lebanon and so on. Um, not always yeah. in constructive ways, obviously. Um, but I mean, there's this sort of feeling like sometimes uh, it's like almost like an arms race um, where sometimes, you know, the, the centralized powers, um, are in the driver's seat and sometimes they're not. Because um, we are at this moment now where, yeah. you know, somebody can have a technique on the street for dealing with tear gas in um, Hong Kong. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, it's being imitated in Santiago. It's interesting. I think that someday maybe there will be a more kind of, you know, histories will have a, a clearer picture of this. But it certainly seems to me anecdotally that and this is culturally, I think, interesting. Many of the people who in 2012, who I observed, were most bullish about the technological, the potentials of uh, liberatory potentials of large technology platforms vis-a-vis the Arab Spring and these uh, these mass movements. Um, you know, people were politically viewed the the political movements and the technologies is closely related. And so lent a kind of political reading to the technologies because of their relationship to these movements. Many of those same people whiplashed, you know, they went all the way in the other direction um, around 2015. And there are many of the same people who were saying, you know, Facebook is a, like basically a fascist platform. Yeah, it's like tech determinists, uh, but they can't decide uh, which way it's. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. Which, right. And of course, like the big solution is don't be a tech determinist um, and try to, because I can remember pushing back against those people um, during the Arab spring. I mean, as someone who 
you know, sympathetic to it and also very interested in the way these technologies were being used, but also saying, no, this was not uh, a Twitter revolution in, in, um, and I guess that was supposed to be Iran, not not an Arab country, or the WikiLeaks revolution in Tunisia. No, that's overstating it. Yeah, right. It was more WikiLeaks then, outside um, of Iran. Yeah. Now I'm pushing back against the same people who are, you know, thinking that Facebook memes are what's going to determine the election. Um, but now we're going. Yeah, yeah. Many yeah. of the same people, I think. Well, anyway. Listen, this has been fantastic. This was, uh, this was fantastic. And I would really recommend people check this out. Maybe they'll hate it like Phil does, but I think if you hate it, you, you, you should read my book first. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Missionaries solves all the problems that we uh, identified. Uh, it's already on Amazon, right? People can order it now. You can pre order it. It's out October 6th. So. Um, and I'm seeing it's already getting some incredible reviews in. So, you know, um, anybody who listens to Manifesto needs to buy a copy of Missionaries, <laughs> not only because uh, Phil's one of the best novelists alive, but also because that's what's required of you. And if you're not going to buy a <laughs> that copy, is your Patreon, stop listening. Right? We don't watch it. I'll, I'll say this. Uh, doing this podcast was, has been very useful. Um, for the book, uh, which is, it's about, it's about U S military involvement in Colombia. It's about, um, it's about sort of, uh, the kind of ways that our wars are interconnected. Uh, I guess, uh, you could say it, um, you know, I, I, I always love, uh, you know, in terms of war writers, I love the poet David Jones of uh, writing in world war two, who thought that, you know, War writing needs to become uh, writing in general should be incarnational, right? That you should have the experience that you're writing about so physically immediate that sort of uh, you know abstractions evaporate. Um, but sort of one of the problems for modern war, and I think Burroughs is is interested in this in his own very strange way, um, is you know we have a world marked by new technologies, but also by, by a kind of globalization of violence. You know where you can have a Colombian mercenary in an airbase in the Emirates watching a Yemeni tribesman on a Chinese drone before killing him with an American supplied missile. And um, the book follows sort of four characters uh, traveling through different conflicts uh, whose paths meet in Colombia and kind of tries to articulate that aspect of, of, of modern warfare and how America sort of projects power on the world. So that's, that's what the book is. Man, that was a phenomenal pitch right there. You should, <laughs> that's not a, a scripted bit. That should be a scripted bit because that sounds incredible. And, uh, you know, yeah, people should buy it. Listen, Twitter is generally a den of moronism, but I have to say, Jesse manages to make um, Twitter seem somehow humane and interesting. And uh, partly it's, um, what do you call it? The, it's yeah, your morning, morning image that you do. Yeah, it's a, it's fantastic, man. I, it honestly feels like a, something hopeful and decent. And, um, and also, Jesse, in addition to being a fascinating, uh, interesting person with all sorts of ideas of his own has a unique talent for digging up archival materials, I would say. So I find a lot of cool stuff from you, not least of all 
insane William Burroughs Boy Scout manuals and um, Nazi Gestapo Hepcat videos. So well, I'm well, indebted you to much. you. And, and and I've been, I just, as long as we're all um, uh, praising each other, I've been a fan of this uh, podcast for, I don't know, I mean, it must have been more than a year by now. Because um, it was, I, I listened to it before you invited me on, and that was a year ago. Um, I, I especially liked the episode on you know, Vietnam means never having to say you're sorry. That was a great conversation, and uh, the great Mac Gallagher. <laughs> I, I am delighted to have uh, been able to sit in on a, on an episode. It, it, it's been a lot of fun. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, despite my, my my dislike of the book, I'm I'm really grateful uh, to you expose <laughs> forcing me to to read it uh, because I uh, I'm, I will be thinking about it a while. And yeah, I really, really enjoy this conversation. Yeah, Take good care. stuff. All right, so long, suckers. All right, bye. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly. Who is enjoying the shadow of whom? I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>